almost every wedding is memorable. And I say this as someone who has officiated at a number of them now. Performing a marriage is one of the chief joys of any minister's job, but just the same, all ministers have to be taught how to do them properly. At least that was the rationale behind a series of workshops that were held one term in our seminary chapel. One for dedicating babies, one for memorializing our departed, and one for marrying couples. In this setting, the seminarians could safely practice on one another away from watchful eyes. But this chapel wedding was slow to get started because we did not have two volunteers, not a single bride, not a single groom. We seminarians found ourselves at a standstill. People get very superstitious about weddings I've learned over the years, even fake ones. Because I am a naturally impatient type, I wanted this chapel workshop to get underway simply so we could end on time. I broke the silence to volunteer myself as a bride and soon another classmate named David volunteered himself as a groom. Keep in mind this happened before same-sex marriages were legalized, although they were routinely performed in our churches then. Before those witnesses, David and I were mock married. For the rest of our time on campus, weirdly, we were remembered as a kind of couple. David often joked that he would never forget me. We're still friends on Facebook, and I have to confess to having a bit of a soft spot in my heart for him. A few years later, I was legally married to my now husband in that same lovely chapel under a chuppah, though, with a rabbi co-officiating alongside a minister. It was a beautiful service, and I'm not the only one who thinks this. It was made all the more wonderful by our friends and family in attendance, including the most determined flower girl ever and the two most dedicated ring bearers, all of whom refused to go sit with their parents because they want to stay close to their ceremony and their Aunt Kelly and Uncle Ben. Those displays of devotion touched me deeply then and they touch me still. That wedding almost made me forget my earlier wedding entirely. But as I say, weddings are really hard to forget. That might be particularly true of the spectacular ones. The last English royal wedding was held in St. George's Chapel in 2018, but I'd venture to say that some of you might have vivid memories of that even now. With a television broadcast, an estimated 2 billion people watched the now Duke and Duchess wed one another. Billions of people were viewers. As delightful as the couple was though, and their story, they were upstaged by the matrimonial sermon Perhaps you recall that it was given by the most reverend Michael Curry, the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church in America, the first African American in its history to serve in that role. There's power in love. Don't underestimate it. Don't even over sentimentalize it, Reverend Curry told a couple in the chapel and the billions around the world. There's power in love not just in its romantic forms, but any form, any shape of love, he contended. There's power in love to help and heal when nothing else can. There's power to lift up and liberate when nothing else will. 
There's power and love to show us the way to live, Reverend Curry said. Imagine our homes and families, then love is the way. Imagine neighborhoods and communities where love is the way. Imagine governments and nations where love is the way. Imagine this tired old world when love is the way, unselfish, sacrificial, redemptive. When love is the way, the earth will be a sanctuary, he insisted. Because when love is the way, we actually treat each other like we're actually family. When love is the way we know that we are children of God, that's a new human family. We become a much more humane family, he preached, when love is our way. A mother of the bride once told me, everybody loves love. I believe that's true. I believe that's why we attend so closely to weddings, why they leave us with indelible memories, why, are they, why they are usually a pleasure to witness, why they make such deep impressions upon us. Because each marriage reminds us of the power of love that Reverend Curry extolled, the power to make something new in the world, to make something new of the world. They gather us together for the express purpose of reflecting on the meaning of love itself. Now, when I officiate at weddings, I invite everyone in attendance to remember the vows they themselves have taken and to impart a silent blessing on the two people taking those vows in their midst. Properly done, a wedding is both a joyous and a solemn event. Since that 2018 wedding, Reverend Curry has gone on to speak widely and write extensively on the topic of love, both inside and outside of the church he leads. In his latest book, Love is the Way, Holding on to Hope in Troubling Times, he writes, the way of love is how we stay decent during indecent times. And love, unselfish, sacrificial, unconditional, liberating love is frankly the only way to realize God's dream of the beloved community on earth as it is in heaven. It's the only thing that can and that ever will make the world a better place. As he asserts time and again, love is not a sentiment, but rather a commitment, a personal and moral commitment, and ideally a collective one. It is a commitment that all of us can honor best in the context of a community. It gives us a heart for the entire world. In addition to being the descendant of slaves and sharecroppers from the American South, Reverend Curry is also the grandson and great-grandson of Baptist preachers. His father left the Baptist tradition for Episcopalianism when he and his wife visited a church that offered them full communion. In a racially segregated state, a black couple was allowed to drink wine from the same chalice as the white people were. This Black History Month, it is worth our noting just how recently segregation ended formally in this nation. To his parents' eyes, love looked like everyone sharing the same cup. Reverend Curry's father went on to become an Episcopalian priest and a civil rights activist. He instilled in his son the drive to always be of service somehow. Reverend Curry declares love creates room and space for others 
the other to be. He recalls the lyrics to that old spiritual of his enslaved ancestors. There's plenty good room, plenty good room. Choose your seat and sit down. One of the controversial stands Reverend Curry took in his ministry was in favor of same-sex marriage. He was a vocal proponent of marriage equality before it was the policy of his church or the law of our land. Sit down in a widening embrace of fellowship and kinship, Reverend Curry tells us. Love always seeks greater and greater good among us. In his clerical role, he is now calling for a revival of love as a way to liberating and life-giving relationships with others, with all creation, with the planet we call Earth. He explains, this is the revival of love as a guide for living, for relationships, for leaders, for our individual and collective spiritual, material, and physical well-being. For Reverend Curry, this revival need not be an explicitly religious undertaking. The love he expounds lies beyond sectarian divisions and has the capacity to unite the sacred and secular in a common concern. Beyond our national identities and loyalties, beyond our political sympathies and ideologies, beyond our religious and spiritual convictions and commitments, there is a universal hunger at the heart of every human being to love and to be loved, he concludes. It connects all people of faith, hope, and goodwill. That love is truly ecumenical, truly universal. But even the most universal love is known most intimately in its particulars. Recall that famous biblical passage from the first letter of the Corinthians, a standard reading at many weddings, perhaps even yours. Because it is so familiar, though, we can neglect the full force of its words. Love is patient, love is kind, love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own ways. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth the Corinthians learn. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. That love has so many promises to keep, doesn't it? Practically inexhaustible promises. That reading issues a clear charge to any couple getting married. Today you are making promises, but in all the days to follow this one, you will be keeping them. Because love endures. It holds steadfast. As Reverend Curry reminds us repeatedly, love is a commitment, not a sentiment. That's true of all love. Not only the romantic sort, the kind that gets heralded in a Valentine's Day card. It's similarly true of the love between old friends and close neighbors, too, of the love of parents for their young children and the love of adult children for their aged parents. Of all the manifold varieties of love, that often do not get their full due, I'm sorry to say. Love is not selfish and self-centered, Reverend Curry told the Duke and Duchess in 2018. Love can be sacrificial. Indeed, at times it must be. We can always learn how to love better, how to love more generously, how to become more loving ourselves. 
Perhaps we flock to weddings because they are such powerful dramatizations. We watch two people publicly committing themselves to love on the television screen if they are royals, in the chancel of the sanctuary if they are a couple from our own church. In the Gospel of John, the very first miracle that Jesus performs is turning water into wine, a drink that, in addition to being intoxicating, obviously, keeps and improves with time. Every marriage officiant, whether the language is legal or liturgical, asks the same questions. Does each of you come of your own free will to be married? Is there any reason why you should not be married? Do you understand exactly the commitment you are undertaking? And are you prepared to do so? What we established from the outset of the ceremony is that the couple is voluntarily getting married. They are volunteering themselves, but with far greater seriousness than David and I did all those years ago at the workshop in our seminary chapel. In the 20 years since then, I imagine David has in his pastoral role performed scores of weddings himself, possibly hundreds. I myself have performed weddings on either side of these United States, in a spot in Cape May overlooking the Atlantic, as well as in a spot in Big Sur overlooking the Pacific. I have married couples in churches and mansions, houses and tents, event spaces and backyards. Even so, these distinct and memorable weddings have more in common with one another than not. And I myself have found that instructive. As we sing in that sweet hymn, the spirit overseeing all, eternal love remains. However unknowingly, these couples are in communion with each other. I can see that now. What if the mightiest word is love? The poet Elizabeth Alexander asked in praise song for the day, the poem she read at President Barack Obama's inauguration in 2009. Indeed, what if love is the mightiest word? What then? Then I suppose all of us have to answer to it ourselves not just on our wedding days, if we should have those, or on subsequent inauguration days, if we are Americans, or each Valentine's Day in February, if we observe that. But each and every day we are truly alive. We have to commit ourselves to learning what love means and beyond that, what it requires of us, both in our private and public lives. We have to make a voluntary and intensive study of it if we actually intend to build beloved community together. Our education in it never ends. Sooner or later, we come to understand that we have to stay students of love, always. <laughs>